We return this evening once again to the Scripture passage that we read last Sunday evening, found in Matthew 18. We'll read from verses 10 through 35. If you're using the Pew Bible, you find this on page 1,133. And then after we read from the Scriptures, we'll also read from Lord's Day 31, question and answer 85. And in the Forms and Prayers book, this is found on page 236. So we read first from Matthew 18, uh, beginning at verse 10, and we'll read through verse 35. Hear now together the Word of God. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. 
thus far our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to question and answer 85, which begins by asking, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? And the answer, according to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, as God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of His church. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we resume in many ways tonight uh, a topic that we commenced considering last Sunday evening. Uh, That topic especially is the use of the keys of the kingdom, the preaching of the Word, but more specifically the key of Christian discipline. And I want to begin by a few clarifications, or perhaps you might call them qualifications. I want to remind ourselves that Reformed theology, reflecting upon the Word of God, has long understood that there are three marks of a true church. Not of a perfect church. There is on this earth no perfect church. But the true church displays three marks. First of all, there is uh, the pure preaching of the Word of God. Uh, the unadulterated proclamation of the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is the proper administration of the sacraments, so that baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, are rightly administered to the proper recipients. And third, the third mark of a true church is the exercise of Christian discipline. These three marks really all go together. If you eliminate one, it's kind of like I think the, the game is called Jenga, where you eliminate certain wooden blocks and eventually the entire tower collapses. If you try to remove one of these marks, eventually the spiritual health of a congregation will severely suffer. So pure preaching is vital, the proper administration of the sacraments is vital, and also the faithful exercise of Christian discipline is vital for the well-being of a local congregation. Perhaps you notice the theme for tonight's sermon, addressing sin in the church, a qualification This sermon does not arise out of a specific instance of sin. It's not as if we have a particular case in mind. We can assure you of that. There are times in the life of a local congregation where a particular sin comes to light and there must be the pastoral addressing with the Word of God uh, that particular situation but in God's good providence tonight is not such an occasion. We are not 
addressing a particular specific situation within the life of this congregation. But nevertheless, this side of glory in the church militant, there is always the existence of sin. To deny that would just simply be to deceive ourselves. To minimize that would also be a certain measure of self-deception. So it's very important for us to respond biblically to the ever-present reality of sin within our own hearts and within the life of the church. And notice that that's the theme that we've given, addressing sin in the church. We're not talking tonight about how to address sin in the culture or how to address sin in the world or how to address sin uh, among unbiblical religions. We're not talking tonight how to address sin in apostate churches, but rather how to address sin within the life of the church within a local particular congregation. And as we unpack that theme, we want to do so by, first of all, noticing the need to address sin in the church, and then secondly, the way to address sin in the church, and then thirdly, the reason to address sin in the church. So addressing sin within the church, the need, the way, and the reason to address sin. The need to address sin, and these two subpoints, hopefully, and our minds logically go together. There is a need to address sin because of the existence of sin and the command of Scripture. The Scriptures testify to the reality of the continual presence of sin. You can think, for example, uh, of the churches that Jesus Christ addresses in the book of Revelation. You can think of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, you can think of the prophets in the Old Testament addressing the covenant people of God, the Old Testament expression of the church community. And you find repeated examples of the ongoing presence of sin in the members of the church and in the life of the church. And generally speaking, preaching addresses sin. But more specifically, there are instances in which sin takes a blatant, or you might even say a brazen form, becoming obvious, rising to a level in which other individuals are aware and or impacted by a person's falling into a pattern of sin. And we remind ourselves that sin is thoughts, inclinations, desires, but also actions, whether it be actions of what we do, where we go, what we say, that are contrary to the commands of God, that are contrary to the will of God. And at times, an individual within the church can become enslaved to sin so that sin is habitual and blatant. It becomes a pattern of life for an individual. These are the 
times in which there is a more particular need to address sin. Because of what the Scriptures command. It'd be one thing if we acknowledge the presence of sin, but the Scriptures were silent about sin. Then we could hypothetically say, well, we're not going to address that sin. But if we're going to be sons of the Reformation and daughters of the Reformation, if we're going to profess that we believe the Word of God to be just that, the Word of God, then, dear congregation, we cannot avoid addressing sin because Scripture commands us to. We see that very plainly, for example, in our text, Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother, uh, spiritually speaking here, sins, notice that, is sin, not, not just if your brother you know, somehow slights you, somehow inadvertently overlooks something about you, but sins against you. If your brother, within the context of the church, sins against you, go and tell him his fault. These are not just suggestions that the Lord gives. The Lord doesn't say, you know, if in all other avenues fail, you might perhaps want to consider doing this. It's a command. Go and tell him his fault. Other passages also uh, emphasize the same duty, the same requirement. We just simply refer to Galatians 6, verse 1. And there the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, I just want to pause there, that word overtaken. It's not that we nitpick one each other. Because all of us who are sitting in this place, all of us have sinned and do sin. But we're talking now about a person being overtaken with sin so that sin has taken a blatant, habitual pattern within their life. If a brother is overtaken in any, any trespass, you who are spiritual, those who are spiritually mature, those who are spiritually standing fast, restore such a one. And there again, it is a command. It's not an option. The spiritually mature members in the congregation have a moral duty before God to seek the restoration of an individual member of the congregation who finds himself or herself overtaken with sin. And the text goes on, and they are to do so in a spirit of gentleness. This is not a proud, arrogant, pontificating, I can't believe you've fallen into sin. Why can't you be more like me? Why can't you be more like him? Why can't you be more like her? But it's a pastoral gentleness that doesn't compromise on the moral truths of the Word of God, but comes alongside of the brother or the sister seeking the spiritual restoration of the individual. And notice that Galatians also stresses that those who are spiritual should engage in this restorative process, considering themselves lest they also be tempted. In Michigan, oftentimes when it becomes the winter season, the lakes freeze over, a lot of people go ice fishing, and at times, sadly, 
the ice will be too thin and someone will fall through the ice. And, and so ice rescues, they always emphasize that if you are going out to rescue someone, don't get too close to where the person fell through the ice because the ice is compromised, obviously. And so the ideal is to have some type of long enough object that you can reach the person in the icy waters without actually yourself succumbing to the icy waters. And when we are called upon to engage in the process of seeking the restoration of an individual who has sinned against us or who has fallen into habitual patterns of blatant sin, we must do so with a spirit of carefulness, lest we also think we stand and fall. Now, at this point, I just want to emphasize that we stand at a crossroads. And the crossroads is either this, we either commit ourselves to being faithful to what the Word of God says, also in regard to the area of the exercise of Christian discipline. Or we say, we're really not that serious about sola scriptura. You see, Christian discipline isn't an option for a church. Really, you can think of it this way. Our, our hands are tied. Our Lord is our Lord. His words are authoritative. When He speaks, we listen. When He commands, we act. We don't have a choice. We don't have an option. We can't step back into the pretended wisdom of our own intellectual ability and say, well, I'm not sure that we want to do this. We have to. We have to address sin in a biblical manner. Well, what then is that biblical manner? And our second point, the way to address sin, and this is not a full detailed step-by-step -step diagnostic manual, but rather we identify three biblical principal truths of how we are to address blatant habitual sin within the church. It is through biblical admonitions, through consistorial binding, and through earnest prayer. First of all, through biblical admonitions. Matthew 18, verse 15 is so crystal clear. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. It's interesting to note that these directives are sandwiched, so to speak, by the parable of the lost sheep, where the good shepherd leads the ninety and nine and goes and seeks the one and rejoices when he finds the one. And on the tail end, there is the emphasis upon the wickedness of the unforgiving servant. And these two bookends, so to speak, of these parables that sandwich the instructions of Matthew 18 emphasize that this must be done in the proper spirit. This is not a vindictive spirit. This is not a gossiping spirit. This is not a, I cannot wait to unload on him or on her for what they've done to me. This is a humble, seeking the spiritual restoration and salvation of a brother who has sinned against you. 
go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. How often this directive is ignored. It doesn't say consult someone else and ask for their advice, giving details and giving names. It doesn't say ask someone else for prayers as you consider going to the brother. It doesn't say broadcast it widely. Go to the individual alone with the right spirit, desirous of restoration and reconciliation, but also with the clear, objective Word of God. And in these biblical admonitions, which if they are not successful one-on-one, then of course there is the increasing intensity of bringing two or three others who can verify the words of Scripture and who can bring, uh, so to speak, more pressure, biblically speaking, upon the individual. And then if need be, if the individual refuses to hear even them, then it broadens out to those who have the spiritual authority uh, of the office of elder within the church. But continually throughout all of the steps of the process, it is the simple coming with biblical admonishments. Brother, here's what you have done. Here is the biblical evaluation of what you have done that proves that what you have done is lacking. And here also is the biblical direction for how you are to change your course. Here is the biblical exhortations about repentance and about forgiveness and about restoration. And we come then not with a spirit of haughty, arrogant judgment, but we come with brotherly love. And we exhort you, we admonish you, we plead with you, we urge you. Consider the teachings of the Word of God. Consider your actions. And for the good of your own soul and for the well-being of the relationship between you and your brother and you and your Lord, amend your ways. But if the brother refuses, and just notice that that's when Christian discipline moves from step to step of increasing intensity, so to speak, when the brother refuses to hear, there then comes a point when the consistory, that is the elders of a local congregation, are duty-bound to take the step of binding the individual who is blatantly living a life of sin binding them, forbidding them from participating in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. And again, this is not to be done in a vindictive spirit. This is not, I'm going to get that person for something they did years and years ago. This again, ultimately is aimed, as we'll consider in our third point, for the salvation and the restoration of the individual uh, who is mentioned. But nevertheless, this does need to take place, and in large part, as an attempt to awaken the person living in a blatant lifestyle of sin, of the seriousness of their condition, that insofar as they walk in impenitence, they are not worthy receivers of the Lord's Supper, that they are not in fellowship with God, nor with God's people. In many ways, a few illustrations of what this action of a consistory saying to an individual, you, you, you do not have the right during this moment to partake of the Lord's Supper, what we might call placing them under censure or under the official steps of of discipline. 
when a consistory says to a person, you do not have the right of table fellowship, of coming to the Lord's Supper, in loving but earnest words they are saying, you're out of step. In a similar way, perhaps, you know, uh, an official, an official at a, a football game might, might throw the flag for unsportsmanlike conduct on a player. And if it is severe enough, they might declare unsportsmanlike conduct, player is disqualified. He can't participate anymore. He needs to leave the field. Now, if he heeds that, and if he amends his conduct, the next game he's perhaps eligible. In a similar way, perhaps an unruly boy or girl at the dinner table throws a temper tantrum, uh, and and dad or mom say, "You, you can't do that at the dinner table. Leave the dinner table. And when you can conduct yourself as you ought, you are more than welcome to come back. But you cannot and you will not sit at the dinner table throwing a temper tantrum. And in the same way, the elders who have the responsibility to oversee the Lord's Supper say to individuals who live open, habitual, blatant lives of sin, you cannot do that and be in fellowship with God at the same time. So the person is barred from the table of the Lord until such time as they promise and show an amendment of life. All of this is to be done with earnest prayer. You can think of Matthew 26, verse 41, which really applies to all aspects of the Christian life. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Because our words alone will not produce the change. It's the Spirit's work. The Spirit uses means, the means of biblical admonishments, But whether it be step one, so to speak, of Matthew 18, verse 15, whether it be you going to your brother or sister to lovingly, humbly admonish them about a sin that they have committed against you, that all must be bathed in prayer. Prayer that you would have the words to speak, prayer that you would have the right spirit in speaking, prayer that the words would be received in the right spirit, prayer that the Holy Spirit would bless what you are seeking to do to bring about repentance and reconciliation. And of course, all of the pastoral labors of a consistory within a local congregation are to be bathed in prayer as well. At any time that the consistory has to go and has to interact with an individual along these lines. It must begin and end and continue all throughout the process of prayer. And when a matter becomes publicly known to the congregation through the various steps of Christian discipline, this is why prayer is offered up for the individual who may find himself under discipline. Prayer that they might respond appropriately to the severity of the discipline 
and that they might humble themselves before God and repent of their sins and be restored and be reconciled. We dare not just go through these steps as, so to speak, mechanical steps that if we just do A, B, and C, D will result. The entirety of the process and really the entirety of the life of the congregation must be one of fervent prayer. And so we can ask ourselves as a congregation, how well do we know how to address sin How well are we in addressing sin, but also do we understand the importance of prayer in the addressing of sin, in our own private lives, in our family life, but also in the life of the congregation? Are we a praying people, fervently praying for the blessing, for the indwelling, for the fruit, for the operation of the Holy Spirit. Not, of course, divorced from the Word, but in connection with the Word. Our prayer, in essence, ought to be that we would be delivered from the evil one. Well, if that's something of how sin is to be addressed then we still need to consider in the time remaining the reason and our third point to address sin. And there is a threefold reason. Why must we address sin, especially in its blatant, habitual forms in the life of a person, a member of the church? First of all, for the recovery of the person. You can think of 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 speaking about an individual who is living in an open, incestuous, sexual relationship, the Apostle Paul, first of all, you'll note, he doesn't compliment the Corinthian church for being all-inclusive and affirming. He says, your boasting is not good. He says, deliver such a one. Deliver such a one living in an open, blatant lifestyle of sexual perversion. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved. It is similar to the extreme remedy for cancer. And some of you have undergone the treatments for cancer. I haven't, but from your testimony, it's not pleasant. Why would any doctor prescribe such a treatment to where even physically you you have all of these symptoms? The treatment is prescribed out of a desire to kill the cancer, but to save your life. Why do faithful consistories, and I put that word faithful there because we understand that there have been and are abuses, and there are ways in which these abuses can be addressed through the avenues of appeals. But we're speaking about the faithful consistory that exercises Christian discipline along a biblical manner. Why do they do that? It is not out of boredom. It is not as if they just sit around a table on a Monday evening and say, well, our agenda's kind of light. 
Let's find some discipline to do. But a faithful consistory before the face of God seeks the spiritual salvation of the individual who is ensnared in sin. This is one of the purposes for Christian discipline. To save the person who is stuck in sin. The second connected purpose is the protection of the congregation. We've used various illustrations before of potatoes and cancer. We'll just simply stick with the illustration that the Apostle Paul uses, a little leaven. A little leaven influences the whole loaf of bread as it spreads. And the point that the Apostle Paul makes, once again, this is found in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 7. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge or clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Blatant sin left unaddressed in a congregation will have a broadening influence and not a positive one. The illustration I'm about to use is far enough removed from time that the persons involved are no longer this side of eternity. There was an instance when, we'll just say, an older lady, an older widow lady, decided to cohabitate outside the bonds of marriage with a man. And the consistory was confronted with, what do we do? And one of the motivating factors to engage in the process of Christian discipline in that situation was, what do her actions say to the young women of the congregation? Because it would have been easy to say, well, she's not that prominent of a member. She's moved away, living in a different location. But it was open cohabitation outside the bonds of marriage. And you can be assured that many a person was watching. Well, how is this going to be handled? What's the leadership's take on this? You see, it's one thing to, to preach a strong sermon against such things. But if, if Christian discipline doesn't back up the pulpit, the pulpit eventually becomes just an empty sound. Just like the parent who maybe always says things, but never actually follows through with any disciplinary action, eventually I can guarantee you the children will become oblivious. Ah, oh, someone's saying something in the background. We're not sure what they're talking about. We hear some yelling, we hear some hollering, someone's animated, but we all know nothing ever comes of it. So carry on. So in the previous illustration, the consistory labored, 
prayerfully in the process of Christian discipline. Yes, with a desire to save the soul, but also with an equally firm desire to protect the congregation. But then the third purpose for addressing sin in the church is for the glory of God. The church is the household of God. Now, I think we're perhaps we're transitioning out of the whole seeker-sensitive mantra of, I don't know, the 80s, the 90s, and then we made our way through the uh, emerging church movement, uh, but over and over the emphasis has been that the church should be all things to all people, should be inclusive, should be warm, should be open, and certainly we shouldn't be standoffish. Certainly we ought to be Uh, As the old evangelist said, speaking to our neighbors as two beggars, the one saying to the other beggar, we have found bread. Not in pride, not in haughty arrogance. But in doing so, we must always remember that the church is the house of God. And I do not refer here to structures of plaster, of two-by-sixes, of concrete, of shingles, but the body, the church, is the household of God. And God dwells in our midst in a very special, unique way. Certainly, He is omnipresent, but He delights to express His glory by dwelling amongst His people. This is God's house. And God is a holy God. And he calls his people to lives of consecrated holiness. Not perfect holiness. But nevertheless, 1 Peter 1 verse 15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The church is one holy Catholic apostolic church. And in that category of holiness, we understand there is the objective legal holiness by virtue of our justification, but there is also the reality of the ongoing process of sanctification. And for the glory of God, open, habitual lifestyles that are contrary to the commands of Scripture cannot be allowed to continue without being addressed within the life of the church. Think of what happened in the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord dwelt there. There's a kind of glory, and it came down, and it dwelt in the holy place, in the temple, amongst the covenant people. But then the Israelites looked upon the foreign gods and said, oh, we want to live like the pagans. And they began to live like the pagans engaged in idolatry and all forms of the sexual perversions that accompanied such idolatry. And to speak rather bluntly, there came a day in which the Lord had had enough. And the glory of the Lord departed. Oh, sure, for a time Israel still had the structure. And they even had the furniture within the structure. And they even had 
a form of the rituals that went along with the furniture and the structure. But some of the most heinous sins were committed even in close proximity to that structure, and the Lord's glory departed. Because while the Lord is a Lord who is gracious and merciful, He is also a God who will not be mocked. Who will not be mocked by open habitual sin being tolerated unaddressed within the company of those who call upon His name. And now we stand at our conclusion. How do we address sin in the church? We have to. Because sin will be present. And Scripture is clear. We must commit ourselves to following the directives of the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself, and bringing forth biblical admonishments when necessary in the right manner and with the right attitude. And when it rises to the level of telling it to the church, we must understand that the elders must take the actions which the head of the church commands them to. And throughout the entire process, earnest, earnest prayer that the sinner might be saved, that the congregation might be protected, and that God might be honored and glorified. That, I would submit to you, is the way to address sin within the church. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we have looked upon weighty matters matters that are not easy to speak of and matters that are perhaps not the most pleasant to hear. But Lord, we believe that it is a matter that your word addresses. We pray, Father, for this church, but not only for this church, for your church wherever she finds herself manifested. And our earnest prayer is, Lord, that the church would address sin biblically and that your Spirit would bless such biblical admonishments for the salvation of sinners and for the protection of the congregation and above all for the glory of your great name. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.